0: Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Ben Bravery is both a cancer survivor and a doctor. He has personally experienced the healthcare system firsthand from both sides of the fence. First as a patient and then as a doctor. Hence the title of his memoir, The Patient Doctor. Apart from being an absolute must-have guest on Breaking Brave because of his last name, Ben is a passionate advocate for human centered healthcare. Today, during our conversation, Ben shines a light on what has to change to create more humanity and empathetic communication in medicine globally. His hope is to empower both the patients and the doctors to understand each other better and therefore demand a better kind of medicine all around. Please welcome, all the way from Sydney, Australia, the patient doctor. Dr. Ben Bravery. Ben Bravery, it was obviously in the universe that we were going to have a conversation with your last name being Bravery. And believe me, (laughs) I have no ability to to make fun about people's last names when my last name is Barefoot, right? But Mm -hmm, welcome to Breaking Brave. I am honored to have you with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: And all the way from Sydney, Australia. So thank God for all of the technology that we can do this. It's early in the morning for you and it's late in the afternoon for me. I wondered if we could start with your incredible book, The Patient Doctor. Um, We have an audience that goes all the way around the world. And yes, we have some listeners in Australia and New Zealand. What was your inspiration to write the book?
1: Well, well, I can give you the um, the traditional author version of that answer, or I can tell you what actually happened.
0: I want to hear what actually happened. The hell with that! I read all of those press releases and stuff, yeah. and that's great, but yeah. no, give me give me the off the record answer.
1: So, I I was um, laying in bed the night before I was to start being a doctor. This was my going to be my first day on the wards. And so I'd finished medical school, had a couple of weeks off, and I had elected to join an oncology ward because that's, that's kind of where I wanted to be. And that's the reason all this thing, all this started. And I'm laying in bed and I'm completely freaked out, which is not an abnormal response for someone about to become a doctor. We all get nervous about that kind of thing. And I had regrets about whether I had made the right choice in life because it had cost a lot to pull out of what I had been doing and go to medical school. Um, I was worried about the burden that it had taken um, on on my partnership with Sana and my own health. And I just kind of did what (laughs) maybe millennials do these days. I tweeted about that anxiety and I sent a tweet. I was laying in bed and I woke up in the morning and it had thousands and thousands and thousands of comments and tweets and it blew up. This thing just took off on its own. It was was a very simple tweet. It was just, um, you know, my first day on the cancer wards tomorrow, having had cancer, I'm all kind of big feelings. And the next day I'm scurrying around the ward learning how to talk to nurses and how to prescribe, you know, Tylenol. And this thing is blowing up in my pocket. And a publisher happened to see that tweet and sent me an email that day, and I was um, on my way back from the hospital late at night to my car, and I was looking at my inbox, and um, I saw this email from this company called Hatchet, and I deleted it because it looked like spam. And I got home, and I said to my wife, "You know, we were debriefing about the day and the tweet, and how I was feeling being a doctor." And I said, "Oh, I got this this spam email from someone about a book, but from this company called Hatchet, and she's a journalist, so she knows things I don't." And she goes, "That's Hatchet, you idiot." show me the email and I I dug out the email from my trash and it was a legitimate uh, invitation to come and talk to a publishing director at a big five publishing house about whether my story could be turned into something bigger than a tweet.
0: I've got shivers (laughs) up and down and thank you I'm so glad you didn't go off the press release kind of answer Ben because I didn't know that. I didn't know that. anyway. Yes. that's a special thing. It's not thing. in the book. Excellent. Yeah. So it's not in the book and it's not online. I don't know it.
1: Wow. Yeah. It's one of those examples where like all the things had to happen, you know, like a lot of things had to happen in a certain order. And then I, I had done some writing. It's not like it came out of nowhere. I'd, I'd written a few articles for our ABC Um, the equivalent of your CBC, and about doctor-patient communication and what to expect on certain wards as I was living this experience. So I I, I guess the publisher had seen that, you know, there was a little bit of writing out there and that I was interested in telling something about this journey. And so then I'd always thought I would do something with the tale, you know, my story, but not quite a book. Um, Had it not been for that invitation, you know, I, I probably still may not have written one.
0: Well, it's riveting patient doctor (laughs) it's riveting so for the for the audience who haven't yet had the privilege of ordering reading and consuming this brilliant book Ben (laughs) talk to us about what is the story essentially of the patient doctor
1: Uh, so it's it's a memoir um and it's it's not my whole life it's a little bit of my origin which is kind of important later and then it's, it's really about a young person. I was 28 when I got bowel cancer and I got in you know, stage three. So, you know, not, not stage four. We all, we all know what that means, but stage three, I was very sick. Uh, I was growing a business in China and I was a zoologist. I was a long way from medicine. I had no doctors in the family. I was the first to go to university I was studying animals in China. I had just met Sana. We were five months into a relationship when I had the colonoscopy. So it's about this massive halt to everything I knew and everything I thought I was going to be. I get pulled into the hospital system for a couple of years. Uh, I have all the treatments, radiotherapy, multiple rounds of chemotherapy, multiple surgeries. I get spat out the end, and I try and go back to this old world. It's kind of zoology, science, science communication. But it took a little while for me to realize that a lot had changed, not just about my body, but my, my mind and what I valued and how I wanted to contribute to the world. And so the book is about, it's a lot about cancer, but it's not just about cancer. It's about what I did after cancer. And, and what I decided to do was to go and become a doctor. And so a couple of years after getting the, um, you know, the, the declaration of no evidence of disease, which is as romantic as it gets these days, um, I took myself off to med school, spent four years studying, and now I'm entering my fifth year after med school, and I'm 11 years cancer-free.
0: Congratulations for that. Thank you. That's amazing. And you're studying in the field of psychiatry?
1: Yeah, which, which is not something I expected. Um, I went to medical school to become an oncologist.
0: And in the book, you describe all of the various factions of medicine that you (laughs) rotated through, that you studied, that it was fascinating because I don't have any doctors in my family. So Mm. the medical system might be slightly different in Australia than it is in Canada. But that leads me to this logical question of, if you wanted to go into oncology and you ended up going into psychiatry, I think the world would like to know, what was the impetus for Mm. the change into the psychiatry area?
1: It's an awesome question, Madeline, and to answer it, um, we need to think about the other reason I went to med school. So it, it, I wanted to give back to a system. So like, like a, lot, a lot, there was a lot of similarities between the Canadian and um, Australian systems. Um, one of those is a degree of universality. So we, I, I didn't pay a cent for any of my care. And I felt a deep gratitude to the doctors and nurses and the hospitals and the radiation oncologists that had saved my life. I was really grateful for that. So part of it was this like, oh, I've got to give something back. And I had sat on a few committees and helped with some cancer materials and advised some researchers, but I wanted to give back in a a much more robust way. The other thing I noticed, and this is hard for me to talk about because I don't want to undermine that gratitude, is there's a, a lot about the system that was a bit shitty. And I noticed that as a patient, I felt it along the way. And I had picked up a few things and I'd been writing along the way and keeping a diary of some of the points in my care where I felt things could have been done a little better, where maybe the system around me had forgotten that I was actually a person and not a problem. So I took this this idea to medical school and I was disappointed again because I had this idealistic view of medicine and doctors. I I was aware of some of the things that can um, go wrong on wards and in doctor-patient communications and consults. But I didn't, you know, I still were high up on a pedestal and the system, you know, was everything um, that was amazing. But there are a lot of problems with it. And, and one of the problems I realized is the way we teach medicine. It, it's quite aggressive. That is the same between our two countries. And then we, we make it ultra competitive and we choose people from backgrounds that might not ever reflect the types of people they're going to be treating. These are privileged people usually who have good marks on a particular exam, which I don't think measures what you need. And then you get into medical school and we kind of call this stuff the, the the conversation skills, the learning, the listening, the leadership, we call it soft skills, um, sadly, and it gets dropped. And it's expected you'll pick it up along the way. And so you pump out these ultra competitive people who have sometimes been through quite an aggressive education system. And you, you spit them out into a system that is again very hostile and it demands a lot from them, but fails to recognize their humanity and fails to recognize that, you know, a, a well cared for doctor provides good care and a happy doctor makes good decisions. So when I was rotating through these disciplines and I kept seeing people reduced to problems, just like I had been on the ward, it all made sense. The one place where that wasn't happening was psychiatry. Psychiatry was a little old school in the sense that it spent a lot of time talking to people about what they cared about, what they value, how they're paying their bills. Can they afford a particular medication? How do they feel about the side effects? What's their relationship like with mum or dad? Have they got pets that they really value and need to be a part of their recovery? This was the stuff as a med student that I just naturally gravitated towards because to me, it helped me understand more than the fractured hip or the dodgy heart valve. You know, it it put it in context. And psychiatry is not perfect by all means, but it allows me to stay in that space. It allows me to practice medicine in a way that rewards me rather than drains me. And that's really important. Levels of burnout, depression, anxiety, and suicidality are very high amongst doctors. And I think a part of that is that they delay being the kind of person they want to be because they're molding to a system. And it was important for me to be the kind of doctor, the kind of human I wanted to be the whole way so that I didn't end up at the end broken, not the kind of person that people want to come and visit for their health and not the kind of person that people want to work with.
0: We've all had experiences been with the medical system. And you're right, we are very parallel between Australia and, and Canada. And some are awesome, but they're few and far between, unfortunately. And your book is brilliant because you're able, coming from the patient and becoming the doctor, to see it from both sides of the equation. You have in the book outlined a couple of situations where the smallest little effort made the biggest amount of difference. And I'm maybe you could pick a couple stories that, that demonstrate that, you know, just a little thing mm. can make such a huge difference to both sides, mm. to both the patient and to the doctor.
1: Yeah. Yep. Um, oh, thanks for the opportunity to do that because I, I can sometimes spend a lot of time talking about what's wrong. It's really nice to talk about what's right. <laughs> um, there, there is awesomeness as you put it, I I just caveat that by saying the potential for awesomeness is awesome. But, and I'm very aware that my criticisms are system level. I think most people in the system are trying to do a good job and at least they went into it trying to do a good job, but system factors are preventing that. And that's why we all have those examples coming out of the consult or seeing the nurse roll their eyes where we leave feeling that little bit icky. Um, the, the the first part in my journey where I realised I just experienced something different was when I went for a second opinion, and, and this illustrates both sides actually. When you're young and, and you get an advanced cancer in our system, you get triaged fairly high up the list because everybody's panicked that the cancer's spread and that you're you're going to lose your your life. And young people with bowel cancer tend to get diagnosed quite late. And, and that's for lots of reasons. One of them is we're young and healthy otherwise, and a lot of our symptoms are vague. So, you know, you rock up with stage three or four, unfortunately, the younger you get bowel cancer and your odds aren't as good. So there was a bit of energy, a bit of momentum when I got diagnosed. And so I got referred to a, a surgeon and I went and saw them and they were very enthusiastic about nipping this thing in the bud maybe just needing surgery and not much else. Um, Going in keyhole wouldn't be too big of a deal. And and, and I happened to realize that I needed a second opinion. And speaking to my mum, whose neighbour was a cancer nurse in her old life, and she said, you should call this hospital. And so I, I didn't know this hospital existed. It was a smaller hospital and it just did cancer. And that seemed like a good idea, actually. One building, everyone in there focused on the same disease. And so I called them up, and I was a bit apprehensive because I had a plan. I wanted to go in, get this thing nipped out, and go straight back to China. And I called this this cancer hospital, and I got put through to a nurse coordinator. And each type of tumor had their own nurse coordinator. And I, I was speaking to her, and I got such warmth over the telephone. It was one of the first times having to you know because you know when you get sick Marilyn you have to go through the same thing over and over again you tell your same symptoms the same story over and over again and I was already bored of it but this felt like the first time this person was having a conversation about illness they came to it with such authenticity such compassion it was almost as if the the hospital had decided that therapy started there that healing started with that first phone call Mm -hmm. and you know normally when you ring switchboards and receptions and you get put through to someone on call, there's a general annoyance. <laughs> there's a general frustration that you're about to make their day more complicated or add to their work. I've certainly seen that as a doctor. But this felt the opposite of that. I felt like this person was giving me everything I needed. It was very comforting and reassuring. And I think that was the first time that I thought, oh, a second opinion isn't necessarily about the procedure and the diagnosis, it's a way of looking at care and and illness. And so you know, she, she convinced me that I needed to come in and see one of their surgeons. And that was a total game changer because that surgeon had a really different style. They were very methodical. They didn't promise me anything despite my need for a quick plan to get back to my life. They were an absolute expert in this field and they were a bit more cautious. And initially I interpreted that as You know, I I interpreted that in a negative way, which is natural because I wanted a quick fix and I wanted to get back to my life. And this person was saying the opposite. They're effectively giving me bad news. But their care and their caution and their need for detail meant that they ordered a few more investigations, a few more scans. And it showed that my cancer was radically more complicated than initially thought. Had I gone in for that first surgery, I most likely would have lost a lot more anatomy than I did. I may have permanent nerve damage. I may have permanent vascular damage. I may have lost my bladder. I may have come out of that with two bags permanently attached to my abdomen, one collecting, you know, feces, one collecting urine. But the slow, careful step meant that I got the appropriate treatment at the right time and that I'm still alive. Now, the interesting part about that is when I went for that second opinion, the doctor got upset that it was the second opinion, which is natural, I think. And I said, oh. You
0: went to somebody else first. You should have come here first. I, I, I can see that. Right,
1: yeah. right. You could see that natural yeah. that natural um, kind of offense. And it, didn't, it hadn't occurred to me that that would be a thing. <laughs> and, and now that I'm a doctor, I totally get it. I saw all my colleagues get crazy egos that were very easily threatened. Um, but I, And I told them that naively, that, that, that I'd had this other plan and it seemed very different. And that I was probably going to go that way. And I remember that the doctor stopped and um, I absolutely adore him. Um, And he put his pen on the table and kind of sat back in his chair. And he said, well, you know, if you want a doctor shop, by all means, go for it. And I just thought, oh, I've, I've pissed this poor person off. And then he was offended and then I was offended. And I left that consult thinking, you know what? I don't want to be treated here. This is not what I want. The first surgeon was enthusiastic and warm and threw everything at me. But I had to choose the option that I felt was going to help me in the long run. And I went back to that first phone call with the nurse coordinator and I thought, no, no, that's, that's the culture here. This one interaction I can't judge. I want this, this warmth and this care.
0: I am so far removed from the medical profession in terms of what I do for a living but when I've gone for years and years for job interviews you get the culture by sitting in the reception area for about 15 minutes and so right from it's palpable I can feel it through the headphones that this it was right it wasn't easy. Mm thank God you made that decision, Ben, because based on what I read, you're right. They would have gotten in mm. there and discovered all different kinds. Surgeon one would have discovered all kinds of things they were not expecting no. and then what then, yeah. right? Yeah, they
1: either, you know, they either stop the procedure, stitch you up and radically rethink things or they just go for cure and take out everything they need to. It, it's, it also showed me, you know, that that's a nice one to talk about because it 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 taught me as a, patient and then a clinician, very little interactions, you know, the, the daily routine of a doctor or a nurse or a physio or a social worker, it, it becomes it becomes almost boring. You do the same thing over and over again. It's a job, right? But these, these small moments have massive implications for the person on the other side of the table. And, you know, I have had, I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars of treatment thrown at me and amazing science, and medical research. I remember those conversations. That's what I remember. That's what I still feel, you know, alongside my Absolutely. surgical scars and my numb fingers and toes. You internalize that stuff and you carry it with you. And it so it matters.
0: Can I share a little story?
1: Oh, go for it. Because I'd love this it. Is
0: this, this, this is about you that'll give you a chance to sip your coffee. I'm a breast cancer survivor. And I wasn't going to mention that in the interview, because I thought, in your book, you talk about not disclosing the fact that you were a cancer survivor to the oncology patients that you're working with. And then there was one night where you did, and then you regretted it. And I thought... Well, I'm in that situation with you talking about this, but let me tell you this little story, the human story. So they have me all prepped. I'm going to go into the, into the operating room. And this very seems like 17 year old person came along, (laughs) sweet girl, big smile. She's like, hi, I'm the student, the resident, the whatever. And I would like to know if you would like a nerve blocker. And I said, well, I don't know what that is. So could you tell me first what that is? And oh, well, we inject underneath your arm on the side that we are going to be operating on. And I have the opportunity of doing this for you if you'll let me. And I said, like, are there downsides? And she said, oh, you'll probably have a little numbness or whatever underneath. And I said, so I might be less ticklish at the end of the day. And she said, yeah, probably. I said, yeah, I'd love you to do it. She, her eyes just completely lit up. Mm. And then when I was in recovery, apart from my kids coming in and seeing how everything went, and I was so drugged, it was like, life was great. Mm. She came in and I said, how'd it go for you? I think it went great for me. And she was like, I'm so excited that you had the trust in me that I could do this. And and, and to this day, now I'm maybe f- five years away from it. Yeah, exactly five that's exactly the interaction mm. that I remember. none of the other wonderful things that were going on in the cancer hospital, but this one mm. girl saying, "I would like to do this for you if you'll allow me to and the humanity of it was mm. just amazing.
1: That's lovely. I mean thank, thank, I mean, honestly this interview shouldn't all be about me please. Um, I want to hear more <laughs> about you that, 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 that's so that's so illustrative of a couple of things I think. One is that that was a proper consent. So that person told you, I mean, she, she maybe should have done a better job on some of the risks, but, well, that's a medical thing. Um, you felt you understood what was involved and what was at stake. So that's really important. And that doesn't often happen well in theatre, particularly yeah. particularly in theatre. Two, it was just the emotion. So it was just her feeling something, right? And, and so much mm-hmm. of the training is about not feeling, which breaks my heart, ironically, because we're told to distance, bury, park things. And I and your example illustrates that that's not what patients want. That's not what patients, they don't want to intera- interact with a computer. And I just love, I love watching, people can't see this, but your eyes lit up when you were mimicking her eyes light up and you can still see it. You can still see the joy.
0: That one moment, interestingly enough, similarly to the conversation you had at the intake nurse with the intake nurse, it'll stay with you forever. It's embedded in a place Mm. that's completely different than all the fabulous science that Mm. cured me. That one conversation, I think about her. I'm like, Hey, I wonder how she's doing. Right.
1: That's lovely. I love that.
0: So I would love to talk now about humanity in terms of this system, this medical system for the nurses and the doctors that they're, turning or trying to make it so difficult and turning people into med bots as you Mm. as you describe them in your book Why? why why is it still like that
1: why it's still like that is probably the easier part of the answer and that's because it's a big complex beast which is slow to change the I think there's a shift underway, right? My, my book is part of a broader discussion and it's kind of like without getting too cliched, like it's kind of a part of this movement of thinking about power structures and privilege and, you know, me too and, and holding systems to account, democratization of knowledge, you know, a lot of internet AI stuff. It's about, it's about I don't think people are allowed, are going to allow any more, These the the holders of this expertise to not perform their job in a way that um, leaves them happy. I think they're going to demand a better way of interacting with these systems, and one of the systems is medicine. I think we, for traditionally, we've held all the knowledge, right? But that's not the case anymore. You, You can you can access anything. There are papers everywhere. There are blogs everywhere. There are podcasts everywhere digesting this stuff for you. There are patient advocacy groups and Reddit threads and, um, you know, NGOs lobbying for this stuff and educating people. We hold a lot a lot of the um, technical information, but it still can be accessed by most people. Our goal, our job now should be, um, you know, translating that to the person in front of us, that adapting what we understand about anatomy and illness and treatments to the person in front of us, in terms of what they want what they value what information they need or don't want or don't need and how they how they like to make decisions now that that's that's a very contemporary view of what a doctor is I, I, i'm not saying we don't test the hell out of them and make sure their knowledge is top notch of course we need to do that that stuff's really important people have to be safe but we need to be valuing this other side of it and and, and that's been ignored historically i think that's been ignored because despite medicine being A caring profession. We've kind of exempted them from the need to care. You you know, that's traditionally been nurses and psychologists and social workers and the occupational therapist or the physiotherapist. They're the people that are there for the conversations. They're making the cups of tea. They're finding out about the grandkids. Doctors haven't been expected to be across that kind of thing. They've been expected to be experts in diagnosis and treatment, but, but I think that's changing and it has to change. You know, speaking of AI, it will eventually do a lot of what we do. It will read scans, it will detect illness, it will analyze data that our brains can't. And so we have to remain at the human part of that relationship. Because Marilyn, it's it's as old as we are as a species. You know, there's always been people in society that other people went to when they were sick. And they didn't have fancy antibiotics or MRIs. They had an ability to connect and understand illness with some knowledge on how it might be best fixed. Now what happens in medical education is we select people like I alluded to at the beginning who do very well on a particular set of exams and we don't select for whole people. We don't select for people with lived experience of illness. A lot of people who enter medical school come from healthy families in nice zip codes with insurance of all kinds, right? They haven't had the grandfather with uncontrolled diabetes, the mother who drinks too much, the siblings who smoke. They haven't experienced that. And I don't think they necessarily need to, but embedding people with lived experience in the system means they'll naturally learn from each other. Now, if you don't want to select, I don't think everyone with, um, you know, with cancer needs to become an oncologist, but you have to teach people once they go to medical school what it's like to be sick. And we don't do that. We teach a hell of a lot about sickness and not what it's like to be sick. Now, some medical schools do this better than others. They bring in patients, a patient speaker maybe, or on ward rounds, they might ask the person, you know, what's it like to live with multiple sclerosis? But I want to see patients elevated as professors. I want to see lived experience become as important as any anatomy textbook or pathology slide. I would want to see people communicating sickness using language that people do every day that doctors can remind themselves of and see the tears and listen to the quiver in the voice and understand. It's the only way that we ground all this sophisticated knowledge we have in a way that doesn't corrupt our humanity but supports it. Medical school doesn't do a very good job of that. And then they expect to pump out doctors into a hostile system where that's not measured or incentivized. You aren't incentivized for those kinds of interactions. You weren't asked when you left hospital. Um, You may have been given a survey to fill out. You may have been mailed one a week later but the kinds of things they were asking, you know, weren't measuring that interaction and that interaction have, had an overall positive effect. And, you know, now we understand that those interactions matter physiologically kindness or auth- authenticity mean people's stress hormones are lower in hospital. They might get out half a day sooner than they would if they didn't have those interactions. They heal slightly faster. Their mood is better when they leave and when they leave they're more likely to come back for follow-up care, which is a huge part of it because the experience isn't tainted. It's not negative. Sorry, that was a long answer.
0: (laughs) No, it's a brilliant answer. Do you see small changes, Ben? Do you start to see, I mean, I know you're in the psychiatry area now, so that's more of the whole person and which is why you selected it. But have there been some things that you've been able to tweak, change, or do you see some changes coming or... Is there hope?
1: I see massive change. Yeah. Good. Not small change, massive change. And I think, the you know, I, I often get asked how to fix it, and it would be really arrogant of me to think that I have the answer because I don't. It's not, it's, you know, you're a systems thinker. It's not going to be one person that solves this, and it's a really complicated system with lots of levers, right? Um, it, I see lots and lots of change. Since the book come, has come out, I've been overwhelmed by the response. And the most surprising part of that is within my own profession. So I expected a bit of resistance or resentment Mm -hmm. because I'm not always saying lovely things about doctors and I'm demanding a better standard. And it can often feel like, like, geez, I'm doing enough. Can you just like leave me alone. It's like, it's, yeah. a, it's a struggle to come to work. <laughs> like, leave yeah. me alone. I've had
0: an hour and a half sleep. They didn't <laughs> yeah. pay me for the overtime. I'm dying here. And you're telling me that I have to be more empathetic?
1: Absolutely. The
0: hell with you with that.
1: But it's, yeah. it's the opposite. I mean, they're, they're, people want to be who they are. They want to live the values which drew them to this field across the healthcare spectrum. They want that, and you know a lot of the burnout and the compassion fatigue and the moral injury is because they can't in this system. Just the problem is a system one. I've spoken to um, universities who are rethinking how they select students, which is amazing. They're thinking about taking away grades from medical school, so you you pass or you don't, or you're competent, or you're not yet competent, right? It's much more everybody is a doctor here. Everybody's reached this level. You don't need to jostle amongst each other. Relax about that stuff. Focus on what's important to your craft. I've spoken to um, health system administrators that are thinking about ways to engineer well-being into their employment programs, how they select staff that value the kinds of things you and I have talked about this session. In my health service in New South Wales, which is a large state, it's roughly equivalent to Ontario in terms of population and size. Um, the, um, th- there is a CXO at the top, who's a chief experience officer. So she has a seat at the senior table and her mandate is the experience of people within the system both clinicians and patients. So her KPI is not money or infection control or the number of people that had fevers. It's kindness and well-being. And she's got to sit at that table. And it's amazing that it's been elevated to that level where we now understand the experience like you described and the ones I've described matter. They should be measured and then they should be engineered so that they occur more frequently. There's there's lots and lots of change. Um, people have started little ward round projects, you know, this this great rush in the mornings when doctors, no one knows when they're coming and then they rock up and they, it's a flurry of activity and there's students and residents and fellows and no one understands who's who and no one's going, no one knows what, what what's being asked of them. You know, there are programs in place where that's slowed down, where times are given to patients and their families, miraculously, such a simple thing to do. The doctor normally comes between 10 and 11. So tell mum and dad or your son and daughter that's when they should rock up with questions. There are ward-based programs to get patients to, you know, to go around them before the ward round and start to think about the questions they have because you get very anxious in that moment. Mm -hmm. You're going to forget stuff. And then there are scribes which are writing all this stuff down and then giving it back to the patient once the group's moved on. There's lots of things we can do to kind of increase that connection and help that flow. And so I'm very optimistic, actually. My book is not, you know, a Debbie Downer about the hospital system, because I'm still in it. I'm still here. I've still got skin in the game. And I wouldn't be if I didn't think things were going in the right direction.
0: I'm thrilled to hear that. Because you're right, machines and computers can replace so much, but the human connection can never be replaced by anybody at all. And, and that's the that's that's at the heart of it all. Mm. My daughter actually wanted to be a doctor. So she applied to a school out west in Canada, the University of British Columbia. And she desperately wanted to be a doctor. Could mm. not. Couldn't make it. Yeah. Couldn't make it because they wanted the grades. And she didn't have those kind of levels of 95, 99, 100%, whatever they needed. So she had to take a different path. And mm. so I hear you when you say, and specifically in your book, I was... Uh, touched by the story of the man who was living in a trailer who had a hole in his roof. Mm. And he was about to be evicted unless he could get back and fix the hole in the roof. And so you guys were able to, un- you were, you personally were able to understand the backstory so that you could get his treatment done in such a way that he had a couple more days to fix the roof.
1: Mm, yeah, little things like that, you know. So they don't only have, you know, this kind of warm and fuzzy stuff we're talking about. There's there's real world implications to this stuff. And, and, you know, it's such a shame, people like your daughter, because I, I bet she would make an excellent physician, you know, and I would make the point, and, and this is the sad part about it, is that the 95, the 99, the 99.9, it has come at a cost. And, you know, I would much rather have the 80, the 85 person that still has a connection to their purpose and still has conversations with people like a normal person has not become so engrossed in their book and study routine that they've lost touch with how to connect. And the other thing that you said there that's amazing is we know connection matters because we have a placebo effect and we measure the placebo effect in every single trial of any new therapeutic. And we know that the placebo effect is not just about taking a pill, it's about who's giving you that pill. And it's about how much time they spend with you when they give you that pill. We know all this stuff matters and we've kind of parked it as, well, that's placebo, but how powerful is that? How powerful is it? Exactly. That should be harnessed.
0: Exactly. What about COVID and what about the fires that you experienced in, in Australia, in Canada? And i sure you know this because your wife has connections and family in Canada I feel like we're at the top of the pressure cooker right now, mm. that we were under-resourced and understaffed, and and the doctors were being pulled in a million directions, healthcare workers and already, and then COVID hit. And I just thought, I don't know how these people are staying mm. committed to being in a healthcare system, especially in Canada, where you could move to the United States and you could make a lot more money. So is that what you're doing it for? No, but... Mm. How has it affected Australia between COVID and the fires and everything you guys have had to go through? You were in a, a broken, as we all are globally, system to start off with, but but then this gets layered on top of it.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a good observation. You know, sadly, the, the pandemic's had a couple of, it's had a mixed effect, I think. One of the positives, and I, I try and look, look for the silver lining in things, is it's elevated the state of the health system to the the national discussion is a national agenda. It's front page news on a daily basis. And it's not, it's not always for good reasons, but what it's done, what it's done is it's, it's reminded people of the importance of having that system and having that system working well. It's also reminded people that at the heart of that system are people and they are vulnerable. (laughs) And a lot of the things I write about in the book, in terms of the pressures on healthcare workers and the hostility in the system was just exacerbated by COVID. COVID hasn't necessarily caused new problems. It's caused demand problems, of course, on a healthcare system, but that demand, it fractured what was already breaking. I've seen, you know, I think this is the same in the UK. I'm sure Canada's experiencing the same. It's definitely documented here. There is a lot more people leaving Healthcare, and they're not going to more lucrative positions. They're just leaving, <laughs> and they're just are, leaving for leaving. I'm going to
0: go do something else.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go and do this other thing for sometimes more or less money, but a lot less stress and a lot more purpose, a lot more reward. Um, I think it's what what it sadly has done is there were a lot of people hanging on in the system waiting for change, working for change. And sadly, I think the the pressures of COVID have, have eroded that last little bit of will. And I think that's why we've seen, you know, burnout high and compassion fatigue high and people intending to leave healthcare if they haven't left already. Um, and that's a, that's a real sadness because we've lost good people there. We've lost good people. And, you know, healthcare workers have been sounding the alarm for a long time. That things weren't right. Um, what COVID did in, in another positive way was it, it modified some of the ways we deliver health. So, you know, it made telehealth or audiovisual services much more reliable and available here. It streamlined some of the building practices we have so that money flowed more quickly down to the providers and the hospitals that needed it. It, it built new capacity where we'd been asking for capacity for a long time. So it it did some good things, but I think overall it's kind of, you know, further jaded a system that was already unhappy. And I I think it's changed what people expect back from the system who work in it. So, Mm. you know, I'm seeing amongst junior doctors, uh, them saying no for the first time. No, I'm I'm not going to do that extra shift. No, I won't be working these hours. No, I will be taking my rostered day off once a month. No, you will be paying me for overtime. I think there's been a recalibration, you know, that maybe people are expecting more because they feel like they're giving more. And so they're holding the system that employs them to account. I, I don't know yet if that will translate to, to better outcomes at the doctor-patient bedside, right? I think I don't know enough about how we're measuring that at the moment to say that but i think if doctors feel more empowered and that they're working a healthier way it it hopefully will mean that their interactions with patients are more you know human centered
0: absolutely where was your i have it written up on my wall your good teaching plus good training plus ample time equals a good doctor so that that prescription if you will for a good doctor happy doctors are happy patients because it can't all be one-sided they can't give i mean it's the airline put the oxygen mask on yourself before you assist another person (laughs) they have to be they have to be healthy and happy in order to be able to be delivering their best to their patients
1: absolutely that's an excellent analogy
0: do you Sit on tons of committees. Do you do lots of speaking? What is what does life look like for you now, Ben?
1: Um, this is a tough one to answer because I'm in the system and I'm a resident, which is the term you guys use. Um, and uh, there are demands on my time. You know, there's my day job, and then there's covering the hospital after hours. Um, you know, last week I, I worked Tuesday evening, then I worked all night Friday, and then I worked all day Sunday. Uh, I'm on call again tomorrow. It's 24 hours. Um, won't necessarily be in the hospital that whole time, but you're on. And, you know, that's having worked a full week on the back of that. Um, we don't have the kinds of still outrageous conditions that you have in North America. You know, our uh, we sometimes have the 72-hour shift, the 72-hour on call, the week on call, the 21 days without any break, we sometimes get that, but that's changing here. Um, and so I still have tension between my exams and my training and my day job and my family and what I need to do to do the job in a way that keeps me happy. I have, Marilyn, I'm up for advice. I have not achieved balance. I'm I'm finding it hard to um, hold on to the The parts of me that I I want to preserve. Um, it's a trade-off I think, but the book's very grounding because it's kind of the books held me to account in a way, (laughs) you know, like I've kind of, I put it in black and white, what I expect. And I have that there that I, I, I need to be this way. I need to practice what I preach. I do some talk, I do some speaking, but it's very hard to balance with my day job I've got to negotiate the time off um Mm -hmm. it but the kinds of people that are asking me to speak again go back to your question about change they're coming from places that are that show you that there is a broad appetite that's medical legal insurers want to hear from me pharmaceutical companies want to hear from me medical educators want to hear from me health systems want to hear from me because they know that they've got to do things differently and they know that it's across the whole pipeline that they need to change and that they need to look after the people that are looking after people. Um, so my days are busy. <laughs> I'm sitting two exams two exams this year, so I'm, I'm in study mode. So I got up early this morning before my little two-year-old woke up um, and did an hour of study. Um, I'm working today. Uh, I'm working tomorrow. Um, I'll, I'll, I try and schedule some family time in. That's deliberate family time as well as all the incidental family time. Um, you know, we haven't talked much about this, but going back to med school at 32 was a big decision for my partner. Um, and, and that's part of, you know, what we talked about in getting access to medical school is you need to give up a lot to go to medical school and not a lot of people are in the position to do that. You know, I had a partner to support me. If you didn't, you couldn't afford to go to medical school. Yeah. Yet You might be an excellent doctor. Um, so part of answering the question about balance is saying that I've You know, I've got to identify what's important to me and try and hold on to it. But to say that I'm nailing it would be a lie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that's the most authentic possible answer in the world, Ben. And that's exactly what everybody wants from a human being and from their doctor is authenticity. Mm. But you're aware of it. The fact that you haven't nailed it, I mean, we're all human. We all have imperfections. Mm. We some things give, some things take. You just it it doesn't work. Always exactly according to plan, but you're aware of it. And that's the that's more than most people could ask for. So good for you.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Marilyn. That makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> Absolutely. <Thank you. laughs>
0: now, can we talk a teeny bit without, you know, diving too hard into your personal life? But your wife, Sana. Your son, Evren, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, that's a whole nother part of your life, which is very, very, very exciting. But I mean, your wife has a crazy big job too, same as you.
1: Yeah, she she hosts. Her, so her name is Sana. She's um she's she grew up um in the outskirts of um you know the, the GTA in Mississauga. Originally born in Pakistan, we met five months into my diagnosis sorry, five months before my diagnosis, she was a journalist in Beijing and I went in to do a radio interview because I was living in China at the time, which we haven't covered, but um, we fell in love in the newsroom (laughs) um, on on the spot actually. And I asked her on a date. Uh, Three days later, we went on that date and we're still together, 12 years. Um, Five months into that relationship, I got the diagnosis. She was 22. And I, I had to say to her, you know, we love each other, but you didn't sign up for this. And this is going to be a big thing that alters the rest of our journey together. And I had an anxiety about her feeling trapped. And I had to say to her a couple of times, you know, in all seriousness, without judgment, it's okay if you want to go, I will understand. And, uh, you know, a, a credit to her she stayed. She, she's amazing. She, at 22, she had an incredible strength. You know, I I say that I couldn't, I I could have done this without her, but it was easier with her. She was there all the time. She was my financial support. At times she was my carer. And you know, bowel cancer is messy, Marilyn. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a messy cancer, literally. (laughs) It is. (laughs) Yeah. I'm laughing about it, but it, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of pain there, um, and, and it's yeah. an exposing cancer. You know, they all are. I'm not. I'm not. There's no hierarchy. They're they're all crappy. Um, but you know, you've you've got this one that's involved in digestion and poo, and no one likes talking about that stuff. And you know, not when you're in love and you're five months into a relationship, and all you know, all you want to do is take each other's clothes off and go for it. Um, you know, so it was it was a big it was a big shock, and I, I you know it kind of. It kind of accelerated our relationship really quickly. Mm-hmm. It, that did not come without pain, of course. We had a lot to navigate. And we had a lot to learn. We were still learning about each other, let alone whether I was going to survive. Um, and then, you know, a number of years after cancer, you know, we, we start to talk about a family. And I had very luckily, um, kind of on a whim, frozen sperm before radiation. It was something that doctors hadn't raised with me alarmingly like until like the day before treatment. It, it's kind of right. ridiculous. We, we've got, they kind of yep. forget that you this person's 28 and they might want to have a family. Um, so I froze some sperm and we were able to use IVF, um, which, you know, we'd been through cancer. So as, as hard as IVF was, we kind of had a litmus test for, um, pain and, and navigating something together. So we were able to get through that and, <laughs> Um Evan was our very last embryo.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. What a blessing. What a miracle he is. <laughs> and he lovely. must be such a joy, joy <laughs> for you to be able to spend time with as a family. Oh, it's beautiful. So, Ben, other than it being your last name, what does bravery mean to you? I mean, just shoot from the hip. Give me your gut. It, it's a question I just love to ask because everybody gives me a slightly different answer depending mm. on your lived experience.
1: So... I uh- the, the unique position I'm in compared to your other guests is it's in my bloody name. And so <laughs> so I have had a lifetime of people commenting about my name and yep. making making comments or jokes or asking me questions about bravery. Now, sure. the, the, the funny part about that is, Marilyn, I don't feel very brave. I, I would never sell myself as a brave person ever. That's not me. Okay. Um, I'm not a scaredy cat, but I'm somewhere between scaredy cat and, and brave. Um, so I think my view of it is a distorted because I've had it in, in my name, and I've had people talk <laughs> talk to me about it my whole life. To me, it's the hard word to be objective. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to be objective. The word means something really different to me. Um, I think I think bravery is if I had to shoot from the hip and distill it down, it's about. Um, tackling things even when they're hard um it's it's hard not to get into platitudes when you describe something like a concept of bravery but it's going into something even when you know it's going to be difficult and it doesn't have to be a big thing you know it can be something really small it can be a conversation with a parent or some feedback to a work colleague or a cancer diagnosis or running a marathon or climbing Everest or all the amazing people you have on your show right who do much braver things than I did um, it can just be about doing something slightly tricky when you know it's going to be tricky.
0: Exactly. Thank you. Because some of the things, Ben, that people have been brave around, I think the world can relate more to the little things. How now does the world buy your book? connect with you, invite you to be a speaker, all of the things that you probably don't have time for them to do, but we definitely want to support your phenomenal book, your phenomenal work, and your vision for healthcare in the future. So how do we, how do we find you? How do we connect with you? How do we follow you?
1: Thank you. I generally don't like talking about that part. Um, it's, uh, so I have a website, which is just benbravery.com, Um, there's a link to the book there. It's published um, by Hachette Australia. Um, Unfortunately, the paperback is just Australia, New Zealand. The e-book and the audio book, which I recorded, um, are available anywhere in the world. And I've got some links on my website, depending on where where you're from. Um, There's also a section on the website where you can reach out to me and email me. Um, so, if you do have questions or you want to share a cancer story or you want to um, see what I think about something or have me along to something, by all means, please get in touch. My, my Instagram and Twitter are also public. Um, so, the Instagram is Dr. Ben Bravery, D R Ben Bravery, and Twitter is just Ben Bravery. And uh, people reach out to me on those platforms all the time as well. It's just me. I don't. There's no like fancy assistant or PR company. So if it takes a couple of days for me to get back to you, it just means I'm on night shift and um, I, I will reply. I reply to every single person that writes to me because I wrote the book to start a conversation and it would be rude of me not to continue that conversation.
0: Thank you. Thank you for this, for your time. I know you've got patience and you're running off to do that, which is so important, but thank you, Ben, for being such a refreshing voice in understanding both sides of it and and i'll never forget this conversation as long as i live because (laughs) next time i have to go in for scans or whatever the smallest little thing that somebody will do all of a sudden i'm a little bit more in tune with it Mm. so thank you for thank you for chatting with me and please come back in a little while whenever it makes sense and tell us how you're doing and how life is going for you
1: oh thank you so much you're so generous um i really appreciate the invitation and i would love to come back and chat with you marilyn it's been an absolute pleasure
0: thank you thank you ben thanks so much for listening to breaking brave for updates between episodes please visit my website marilynbarefoot.com you can also find me at marilynbarefoot that's it for today see you next time